0: I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 5. And I'm going to be introducing the sermon in a slightly different way today. And I'm going to have Jim, if you would, stand outside the doors. And we're going to shut the lights off in this sanctuary. A lot of laptops, okay. I remember when I was growing up. We would go into our woodshed, and we would tell ghost stories. And we would often talk about ghosts and vampires and werewolves and zombies and witches and warlocks and all of these types of things. And you know, I don't necessarily do that with my kids, but uh, my mom was just on a slightly different page than we are, and, and we would tell these ghost stories, and the goal would be to scare one another. Now, I'm not going to tell you a, a ghost story this morning, <laughs> but I want to describe to or, or use something, a, a, a an, an illustration, if you will, that actually has become very popular in our day. When I was growing up, we would talk about vampires, and even on Halloween, I would dress up as a vampire, believe it or not. Dark Shadows with Quentin Collins was very popular. And we would, we would dress up as vampires. And I don't recommend that. But that's what we would do. And, and all the ghost stories had to do with vampires. And in our day, a new thing has kind of come under the scene. And that is the concept of zombies. Now, can I just suggest that zombies, the living dead, are rather occultic. But in order to popularize this in our day... We have moved away from the ghost stories. Go ahead and turn the lights back on. We have moved away from the concept of ghost stories in this. And when we start talking about zombies, such as I Am Legend, such as World War Z, in these movies, they try to give a biological basis to zombies they even do this now in in video games just so that it kind of helps extract that uh, undertone of of the occult and and people are loving these games tonight or excuse me this morning the title of my sermon is zombies that's going to probably freak some people out when they see that online But bear with me just a little bit. Don't tune me out right now. Follow me here. Zombies, as it has come to us in our generation, meant the living dead. As you then move into World War Z and such, the the concept moves more to this idea of an infection in the human race, and it gets passed on from one to the other, and the goal, of course, of the zombie is the whole world becomes zombies. And there's got to be a cure for this infection, and so that's what World War Z is about is they're trying to find this cure. So now let me transition because this really is about what Romans 5 is about. It really is about zombies. It is about the living dead. Ephesians chapter 2. Follow me here. Don't tune me out. Ephesians chapter 2 Verse 1, it says this. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient. Isn't that really the essence of the occult when Satan himself, the prince or the ruler of the air, is at work in people, and whether they realize it or not, they are serving him. That was you and me before we came to Christ. Satan worked in our hearts Whether you were aware of it or not, you were an enemy of God and you were a devil worshiper. Yes, you were. It didn't feel that way. I mean, before I came to Christ, you couldn't convince me or show me in the Bible where it says I'm a devil worshiper. I don't. I go to church, and yet I, the Bible very clearly says in Romans five that I was an enemy of God. Not only was I an enemy of God, but spiritually I was dead. Physically, I was alive. Yes, I was the living dead. So were you, zombies, okay, the living dead. And yet now, with this concept of death that we see in our passage today, we're going to read Romans 5 from verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Not only do we see this concept of the living dead, this death that passes over us, which is both physical and spiritual, but it's like an infection that spreads throughout the human race that comes from Adam all the way down to me so that in Adam, I sin and I die. This is a theme that we see not only here, but in other places such as 1 Corinthians 15. But I want us to talk about this death I want us to talk about this infection, this corruption that is in us, because there is only one way to be able to be healed of this infection, and that cure is found in Christ. In Adam, we die. In Christ, we live. Now, again, let me emphasize, last week I talked about how we were serial sinners, and much of the ap- much of the uh, descriptions of serial murderers applies to us. We become numb to our sin as they do. It's, it's a compulsion. They can't seem to do the good. And that is an exact picture that Scripture gives us in Romans 3 of you and me. Before we came to Christ. All of our righteousness as filthy rags. Our best was repugnant to God. Because of this infection. And I use an illustration of a nurse. She would go into the um, the disease ward. And without gloves or without any kind of protection, taking care of this diseased person. And then going into your ward, which you're just there because you're getting over some simple problem. And the nurse feeds you. And you, your tendency would be, no, 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 not me, because you are concerned that somehow this infection get, would get on their hands and now you would be infected. This is what has happened to us so that even our very best is tainted and corrupted by sin. Now, some use the term depravity or total depravity to describe this sin infection. We looked at the offense of sin, and that it was our sin is an, an infinite offense to God, and therefore requires an infinite remedy. Whatever infinite really is, it is beyond our conception. And Christ is that remedy, and what He accomplished for us on the cross and in His resurrection. We saw how the the extent of sin was this thorough, total corruption in us. And then we last we, we rested and, and looked at and, and meditated on the remedy of this sin, which is only found in Christ. Now, we're going to come across a, a word here this morning called, it, the word is justification. And my purpose is not to unwrap that today. Um, we actually are going to do that in the near future, but We're not going to be doing that today. We'll be touching on it because it's important. Actually, the entire chapter, Romans 4, is about justification. Abraham's faith being credited to him as righteousness. And now in the new covenant, Christ's righteousness is credited to us. It is done, according to chapter 5, verse 1, through faith. We move to this section in verses 9 through 11 in which Paul says, yes, you and I, we were enemies of God and we needed to be reconciled back to God. And the only way that this could happen in view of the utter absolute depravity of man was something magnanimous that Christ had to do that was absolutely magnanimous and that was the cross and the resurrection. We see that the very the last verse of chapter four. And he uses this concept of reconciliation in chapter five, 11 through, um, nine through 11. And so my question then is, as we move into verses 12 to the end of the chapter, where Paul wants us to really once again go one step further in understanding the extent of this sin but also begin to reveal to us even more of this thing called God's grace. And so that's why we're going to be looking at this passage today. It is often used to discuss this concept that theologians call original sin. So before we go any further, let's start right there. Chapter 5 of Romans, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For the law was given, excuse me, for before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account where there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam To the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man. Now you understand the one man is referring to Adam, right? How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses, future generations, and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life? I want you to just underline that phrase, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let's continue on. Verse 18, consequently, in view of what he has just said he's going to bring he's going to kind of wrap up some of these points because what he just said as peter tells us in second peter chapter 3 some of the things that he writes about are really hard to understand they truly are this is hard to understand consequently just as the result of one trespass has condemnation was condemnation for all men so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin is increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I realize that sin, and even to the degree that Scripture teaches the concept of sin, is very unpopular in our day. If you were to talk to modern psychologists, they would want you to believe that the real enemy of the human race is not sin, it's guilt. Yes, it's guilt. That, that is what most modern psychologists would tell you. So they, they try to get rid of religion for this reason because religion, and especially Christianity, produces guilt. What they fail to see is that this guilt is not only real, but it leads us to the remedy, which is Christ. Have you ever read or, or heard of the book put out, I guess it was in the 70s, You're Okay, I'm Okay, or I'm Okay, You're Okay, whatever it is. Um, the author's premise is that you're not a sinner you're basically good you're not basically evil what a negative view of mankind of the human race to say that you are evil and and this this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that if i view myself as evil i will become evil i'm sorry if you're already evil you're evil you can't become evil and so the premise is that man is basically good and that the real enemy is religion, because it produces guilt in you. We need to be freed from guilt as those who are lost. And sin. now, in Christ, yes, we need to be freed from this guilt. And Romans 8, chap- uh, chapter 8, verse 1, makes this abundantly clear. Now, therefore, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And condemnation has to do with guilt and punishment. But the law of God needs to, needs to speak to those who are lost because apart from guilt, apart from the Spirit of God using or bringing mankind into conviction for their sin, there is no desire for this remedy, no desire for the cure of our infection, and that cure is in Christ Jesus. and so. Mankind, generally speaking, even after World War II, mankind basically still sees themselves from a humanistic perspective, I'm okay, you're okay. We see here that that absolutely is not true. Now, follow his line of reasoning, if you will. And and you know what, Before, before we really get into this passage... I want to emphasize again, as we're going through Romans, we're going to be touching on truths that are really going to make us think. Now, these truths have very important implications for us. This is not a theology class. I want to be able to take these truths. I want to be able to present them to you. I want you to think, but I want you to be able to walk in these truths because how we think about God, how we think about man will determine how we live our lives. If I believe that God is an impotent God, I'm not going to pray to this type of God. If I see God as someone who's just constantly wanting to make me guilty and hurt me, I'm not going to want to serve this God. I'm not going to want to follow him. But if I understand that God is filled with love and grace, especially in view of my plight, one who's lost in sin, I will want to run to that God because he will want to embrace me. He will want to help me, love on me, encourage me, and help me deal with my sin issue and consequently my guilt. He came to eradicate the sin and eradicate the guilt. So I want us to grasp these truths because they have deep implications for how you will live every single day of your life. The gospel is not just good, you've heard me say this before. It's not just good for my salvation. I don't want to just hear the gospel so that I can get saved as if now I'll take the truths of the gospel, set them on a shelf because now I'm living for Jesus in his kingdom. No, the gospel has clear implications for every single moment of your life as a believer, as a mature believer in Jesus Christ. I think we're going to see some of that today. Because eventually, as we're talking about sin, we're going to segue, as I say, into God's grace. Adam sinned, and because of his sin, we have been found as sinners. What Paul does is he presents to us this idea, because of Adam's sin, death came into the world. Now, I realize there are those who say that this is only spiritual death. I agree. He is talking about spiritual death, but not only spiritual death. If anything, if he's making an emphasis between physical death and spiritual death, he's talking about physical death here. But there are those, and I won't say why they do this necessarily, but even within conservative Christianity, they say that this has to do with spiritual death and not physical death. But it's clear Romans chapter 8, verse 10, clearly tells us it says, but it excuse me but if Christ is in you your body is dead due to sin yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness so it wasn't just simply that Adam because he sinned would no longer live forever he would be mortal one day he would die that's physical death But he is also talking about a spiritual death, which now would be a separation from God. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Well, this death was even it extended to those who were not under the law. And if they're not under the law, he says in chapter 5, he says, Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. And the idea is that they still died apart from breaking a revealed command as as was given to Adam. And therefore, if they still died, the question is why? And his point is clearly this, because Adam sinned. And I have been infected by that very same sin. And so he says here, he says death, sin entered the world, verse 12, sin entered the world through the one man, and death through sin, and therefore death came to all men because all sinned. That is, every man, every generation, sin has been a part of it. Scripture makes it clear that we all sin. We all sin, but why do we sin? Now, Pelagius, who lived during the time of Augustine around, I'll just pick a date, around 400 AD, Uh, obviously they lived more than 400 AD, but you follow me, and Pelagius and Augustine argued back and forth about this concept of original sin. Augustine was teaching it, as I'm sharing with you, Pelagius said, no, we are all born innocent. Just like Adam was born innocent, we are not tainted by a sin nature from Adam. We are free from that. We have uh, our choice to do what is right or do what is wrong is like a blank slate for every single person. Eventually, we all have this choice to do right or wrong. And he even suggested then it would be possible for man to live and never sin. And he placed such an emphasis on man's ability to do right and to do good in and of himself. Though he could rely on the grace of God. That's how, we, that's how he would put it. Augustine said, what are you talking about? Scripture makes it very clear that we have a flesh. We have a sinful nature that this nature in us is fallen and This sin has been passed down from Adam, even to you and me, Pelagius, even to this generation, me and you, church, and it has affected us and infected us. We're the living dead that has been infected by this thing called sin so that we do not do what we want to do. We are sinners. Now, Follow me, then, in coming to his conclusion in verse 18, consequently, just as. He's setting up a parallel contrast. Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. Pause for a moment. Condemnation. Is the charge of guilt and a sentence. Guilt and its judgment, its punishment. This comes to us from Adam. This verse makes this abundantly clear. Now, those who lean in the direction of Pelagianism simply argue well, this is the only passage though it's what, verses 12 through 25? (laughs) That's a lot of verses, church. It's the only place in Scripture where it really says this, and this concept of original sin. And so they excuse their view and this passage and do away with it because it's only one passage in Scripture, as if maybe Paul went brain-dead when he was writing Romans 5. I don't know. But it's clear here, we have not only been affected by this sin so that we are, have a sin nature now a part of us, but we are guilty and worthy to be judged. Wow. Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also, though it's a contrast, the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life as opposed to death for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many, going back to verse 15 where he talks about that phrase, the many, the many, you and me, were made sinners so that through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. That's the concept of justification. Hmm. So what Paul is saying here is that we are not sinners, follow this, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Now, did you follow that? I was a sinner at birth. Follow some passages of scripture here, if you will. Psalm 51, 5. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Psalm 58, verse 3. Even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward and speak lies. Job 25, verse 4. How then can a man be righteous before God? How can one born of woman be pure? Genesis 8, 21. Never again will I curse the ground, this is God speaking to Noah, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And then Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, all of us also, I I read verses 1 through 2, here's verse 3, all of us also Lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature or flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath or by nature children of wrath is the literal translation. By nature? I was an object of, by nature. Not by an act Not because I learned sin through my culture and because I see bad example, then I do something bad. That's not nature. By nature means I was born with. Phusis, I'm born with. It's innate. According to nature, I am an object of God's wrath. This infection original sin condemns me. It makes me, verse Romans 5, 19, it makes me a sinner. It literally, it says, constituted sinners. It made me a sinner, and it set me up to be guilty and to be worthy of punishment. Now, part of that punishment is physical death, and we will all die But there is a physical death, excuse me, there is another death that Revelation calls the second death, and that is hell. And before I go any further, there is a question that is probably stirring up in some of your minds. And this question is, I believe very relevant for us as a church, this question this question is, when infants die, let's say before the age of accountability, or unborn children die, do they go to heaven? That is not an easy question to answer. But can I suggest something to you? And and verses 18 and 19 seem to say that even if an infant dies, he would go to hell because he's born a sinner, and he's born guilty and worthy of punishment. Can I point something out to you that's kind of a hint that that conclusion would not be accurate? And it's found in this. When the one act of righteousness brings justification that brings life for all men, does that mean that all men are saved? Think about that for a moment. The liberal view of scripture, they come to this and they say that everyone eventually is going to heaven, and they prove it by these two verses. Because when justification comes that brings life, it comes for all men. But of course, that's isolating this passage, because in verse 1, he makes it very clear. He says, therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, since we have been justified through faith it's clear that this justification comes to all men who believe. All men who believe. And there is a qualification that Paul purposely leaves out. Even so, I believe there is a qualification in the first part that says the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men And that qualification has to do with the sense of culpability, personal culpability, personal responsibility. Now, what do I mean by this? Paul leaves out that phrase by faith in the second part, and he leaves out a clear, specific understanding, a qualification in the first. And I do believe that it has to do with infants. Now, if you were to go, and we can do this, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. When I preached on this, there it's, it comes to the conclusion that in view of all of creation revealing the eternal power and divine nature of God, and this can be perceived by all men, all men will be without excuse on the day of judgment. Then here is my question: What about those who cannot understand, such as infants? It would be clear that they would have excuse because they could not perceive God's eternal power and divine nature in His creation. Now, I would say that there is a passage in Second Samuel chapter twelve, verse twenty-three, where David has sinned with Bathsheba, and the child gets sick. David fasts. He fasts until the day that the child dies, and then he breaks his fast, washes, cleans, gets dressed, and people are amazed. What? I mean, when he was sick, you fasted, and now when he dies, it's like, you're okay? And he says, yes, because I will go to him, but he cannot come to me. Now, I personally believe that he is referring to eternal life in heaven, but it could be said that he is simply referring to the grave, that I will go to him to the grave, but he cannot return to me from the grave. There's actually a passage in Genesis that mirrors this concept. Okay. And so we would still have to say this, the subject is not clear. But from, Revel- from Romans chapter 1, I would venture to say that Paul does tell us that if you cannot understand God's creation and that it's speaking of his eternal power and divine nature, that if you do not understand that, you cannot say that you would stand before God without excuse because you would have excuse. I didn't understand this God. Do you follow me? Also, This concept of the age of accountability, if you were to turn to Deuteronomy chapter one, and in Deuteronomy chapter one, verse 39, actually I'm going to start with verse 37. He said, because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, you shall not enter it, referring to the promised land either but your assistant joshua son of nun will enter it encourage him because he will lead israel to inherit it now look at verse 39 and the little ones that you said would be taken captive and if we were to go back to numbers 14 we would find this passage this is was their fear their concern even the little ones that you said would be taken captive your children who do not yet know good from bad they will enter the land. The judgment that I am passing upon you will not touch those who did not understand good and bad. And from this comes, and a passage in Isaiah 7 as well, this, from this comes this concept of age of accountability, not really knowing good and bad. Now, Rusty, who's two years old, he is beginning to understand good and bad but it is probably more along the lines of cause and effect. If I do this, oh, I know I'm going to regret it. If I hit, I will be seeing the four walls in the bathroom, and I'm not really going to look forward to that, so maybe I should reconsider hitting to get my toy back. There is more of this concept of cause and effect than a clear understanding of sin and guilt before God, he eventually will come to this place of not only understanding good and evil, and that is not just doing good and evil to my fellow man, but against you and you only have I sinned, Psalm 51 says, that that sin is an offense against God's holiness. Not only will he understand this, but Kate and Zach's goal is that they will also then understand the precious gift of eternal life that's found only in Jesus Christ through faith. So if he cannot understand God's creation and see, wow, there must be a God, if he cannot understand the concept thoroughly of sin and an offense against God, if he cannot understand that by faith in Jesus Christ I have eternal life and he heals me of my sin, then we would say he is before that age of accountability. And we can see that in these passages here. And then turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 19. Now, my purpose for this morning's sermon is not this here, but I've been praying all week because I knew that I was going to be preaching on original sin. I knew that this concept of sin and guilt was going to come up. And Mike and Sarah have gone through a tragedy this past week texted Mike yesterday. I said, hey, bro, I'm supposed to preach on this and I need to touch on it. Is this going to be too emotional for you? And he said, no. Talk with Sarah. Please, by all means, let's dig into this. So That's why I'm doing this. this. This was the passage that we were to look at and study. But now, God in his sovereign purposes has said, you know what, this is Really important for us to get Matthew 19 verse 14. if you could turn there, the children were coming to Jesus, and the parents were saying, "Hey, can you bless our children, the disciples trying to protect Jesus' time? I mean these are just little children and, and placing them on this level of they're not as valuable as adults and jesus has time to give to adults but children they're kind of low on jesus's priority list and so they they intervene and jesus says well, guys what what are you doing and he says that the little children were brought to him for him to place his hands on them and pray for them but the disciples rebuked those who brought them then jesus said in verse 14 let the little children come to me And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. He blessed them. Now some would say, well, he's really not talking about the children when he says, For of such is the kingdom of heaven. He's really talking about those whose hearts would be like these children. And I'm not going to disagree with that, but then Why would Jesus bring this? Why would Jesus welcome these children and say, I want to bless them? Because the kingdom of heaven doesn't belong to them. It only belongs to those who are like them. That is not Jesus' point. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven belongs to these and to those whose hearts are like them. He is certainly not excluding the children. So let's be careful in how we understand, for such is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them as well as those whose hearts are like theirs. That is, those who have yet to reach the age of accountability who trust mom and dad. Come on, guys, you're not going to fail me. Of course, you're going to feed me and take care of me and change my diapers. And you're going to, when I cry, you're going to respond. And there is this relationship, there is this intimacy, there is this trust, there is this humbleness, and that heart is what Jesus is getting at, but he's not excluding the children by any means. And for that reason, he blesses them. Now, we could still walk away, and and there's probably some other scriptures that don't speak quite as strongly to this issue. We could still walk away and say, "Mm, I'm not sure, and it would be a fair question. Why wouldn't scripture make it abundantly clear? Now, in my personal opinion, it is clear enough before the age of accountability that those who die will go to heaven. But fair enough, why doesn't God make it abundantly clear? And I appreciated one particular gentleman's explanation of this, and I offer it to you. Perhaps, perhaps, if God made this issue beyond dispute and absolutely clear, how might the abortion industry treat the infants all the more? we can kill them. They're going to heaven anyway. And God absolutely would refuse to accept that as a rationale. It could potentially open the door for a floodgate of sin. And I believe that there are certain theological truths that God purposely shares no more than what he does in Scripture, such as in the whole realm of demonology. He purposely shares only so much with us perhaps knowing that our heart would want to be to to investigate this and understand it and unwrap it and get too involved in this concept of demonology, which, by the way, people still have done this and have written entire books completely based on speculation and personal experience. And we have to be willing to say, you know what, Scripture speaks this far, and let's leave it at that. But there's a reason why he doesn't get into a full-blown teaching about angels and seraphim and cherubim and the four living creatures and the the 24 elders that are seated on their thrones around the heavens. They gives us some, and what I'm going to say is enough, but the tendency within man would be to worship angels, to, to revere them too highly, to investigate them and look into them more than what God would want us to. There is that tendency within men. And so on this issue, I believe there is enough information to come to a conclusion, but I was also have to say it's, it's not absolutely clear for God's personal reasons. But I think it's clear enough. When children die, they will go to heaven. Meaning then that even though they are sinners and they are guilty, And they are worthy of punishment, guilt and the sentence, the punishment, that's condemnation. And it says here that that has been transferred to all of us through Adam. God chooses in his grace to say to the children, they will not be punished. When a 23-year-old has his favorite car taken from him, and he pulls out a gun and chooses to shoot the man who's stealing the car, he will be held liable for murder. But what about a three-year-old? His favorite toy is taken. He picks up the gun from his dad's bed and he shoots the person. Will he be sentenced as the 23-year-old? Of course not. Why? Because of this concept of culpability. Even though what he did was wrong, even though in the eyes of God it would be sin, he does not understand and he will not be held liable like the 23-year-old. Let's move on here. Let's go back to Romans chapter 5. And if you have further questions on that, I welcome those questions. I can't tell you that I've got all the answers because I know I don't. But I offer that to you and would encourage you to find comfort in the scriptures that are, that are clear enough for us. And that, uh, to be able to draw a fair enough conclusion that children, when they die, before the age of accountability, they will spending eternity with God. It says in verse 17, for if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in this life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We come to this passage And we find ourselves comforted because even though I have been affected and infected by this thing called sin, there is hope and that hope is found in the grace of God. And it says that it's not just God's grace, but it's his abundant grace. And the Greek word that's used here means surplus, as God pours out sufficient grace to cover my sin, there's even more grace on top of that. God gives us an abundance, a superabundance of his grace, and he says that this grace, and actually the gift of righteousness we find in verse 17 or 15 flows from that grace. Because of this grace, we reign in life, through what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. Now, it does say in Ephesians 2.1 that I am dead in my transgressions and sins. And as you move on to verse six, it says that that God in his love has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. God, even though I was dead, By faith, he has made me alive with Christ. Christ was raised from the dead. I, too, am now spiritually raised, and I am seated with him in the heavenly realms. Where is Jesus seated in the heavenly realms? Somebody tell me. Uh, To the right hand of the Father, is that just kind of like one of these little dinky type of chairs, or is that a throne, church? That is a throne. He's sitting on the throne as king of his kingdom, and I have the privilege, and you have the privilege, of being seated with him. What are the implications of this? Number one, that death, that sin has birthed in me and has affected and infected me, that death no longer rules and reigns in my life. Death does not, spiritual death, and then. Even though you die spiritually, you do not, and you go on to be with Father, even that physical death will not rule you, but also God's life is birthed in me. I have been freed from this captivity to sin that just breathes death, spiritual and physical. I've been freed from that. I've been made alive with him. Now, Paul, he used this term. He put it this way. He said, the old is past. He says, we are all new creatures in Christ. The old is past. The new has come. You have been, when the moment that you trusted in Christ, that death sentence upon you, that sin just oozed and breeded, that death was consumed in Christ. You were made alive. You have been raised up with him in newness of life. And it says you actually reign in life. You are seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't have time to thoroughly unwrap this concept of what it means to be in Christ. We will one day. But understand this that in Christ now, you have life. You're a new creation. The old you, the old lifestyle, we're going to find in chapter six, that's been crucified. The old man, he's been crucified. The old nature no longer rules and reigns in your life, but Christ, because I'm in him, his life is infused in me, and I have become a new creation, I start seeing things differently. I start seeing things from his perspective. I start desiring things that I did not desire before. When you are born physically, that infant starts craving milk, eventually starts craving real food. And you, moms and dads, you understand that word craving to the point where if you're too slow in feeding that little one, boy, do they throw a temper tantrum. Come on, mom, dad, let's go. You know, the train's here for only so long now. Let's fill it up. And. You know, there's this craving, and that is the—that's the new craving in us for the milk of the word, for the solidity, the solid food of the word, for spiritual things, this intimate relationship with God. These are new desires that He places in us because there's been a transformation that has taken place in our lives, church, and it is in us, according to chapter five, verse. chapter five, verse five, it says here, and hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. See, the Holy Spirit lives in you. That spirit that raised Jesus from the dead has sealed you. And he is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance in the saints. Life, and not just some life, not just enough life, but a superabundance, a surplus of life, a surplus of his grace. So, what is the truth? The truth is, I am no longer a sinner. Scripture purposely calls you and me a saint you see a sinner even though in adam i became a sinner that changed when i was born again that changed when i became a new creation that changed when god placed his spirit in me and now with me being a new creature i am now considered a holy one and we're going to get into his justification and how that implies this but you are not one who is a serial sinner, any longer. Your desires are different now. Your desire is for him. And here is where the rubber meets the road. And that is that I'm going to challenge you to embrace this truth. Embrace it. Don't just know it up here. And as we go through... the book of Romans, he constantly throws in this little p- phrase, through faith, through faith, by faith, faith, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we receive this free gift, this life, faith. You see, faith, that that's the operative word. If you're going to walk in this truth, you're going to do it by faith. And we sang this song, I've been, Forgive me, I can't remember the title, but it it talks about that we surrender to him, and that is the heart and the essence of faith. We surrender to this truth, and here's my suggestion to you. i leave this out for the men in one of our groups. I said, and I challenged them this. Try and think of the last time that you sinned, and then ask yourself this. Was there a lie that you believed that led you to this sin? And I'm going to suggest to you that there always is a lie that you believe always there is a pushing away of the truth a burying it at least temporarily and allowing a lie to come to the surface and believing it some of these lies i can't live holy it's too hard i don't have enough strength or willpower i will always fail so i will shift my life into neutral. I would venture to say that there are many Christians just like that today. That is the lie. I can't live victoriously. I have tried and tried and tried. And it's all about me and what I can do and my strength. And we have failed to truly grasp this concept of faith, which is surrender. It is not about my will, but it is about me surrendering to his will. It's not about me trying harder. It's about me surrendering more. And and that fine line can be so hard at times to personally discover right now Is this my effort, or am I truly submitted to his will? We, of course, see the perfect example of this when Jesus himself faced the greatest temptation where he says emotionally he was at the point of death in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's there that we hear those famous words, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submitted to the Father's will, knowing the incredible punishment and pain that he would suffer for you and me the one who knew no sin becoming sin for me in the garden before the cross his heart was prepared he struggled with it church even as the son of god he struggled with it but his conclusion was this not my will but yours be done we might also say uh, God calls me to do things that are too hard and out of my comfort zone. It's just not me or my gifting, so I can't. Now, that's not about sin. Therefore, the negative, it's more about the positive. I want to I do these things. I want to walk in everything that God has for me. But this thing right here, that's just too hard. That That's not my suiting. That's not my gifting. Uh, I just can't do that. I'm going to tell you this, that if God is calling you to do something, he will give you abundant grace, a surplus of grace for you to do it. Not just to resist temptation by grace or rather in Titus 2 it says grace teaches us to say no. So it's not just about that but it is also fulfilling God's will and purposes for our life. God gives you enough grace to walk in this. Don't continually see yourself as a sinner who is just simply saved you are a saint you're a holy one god has made you a new creation and when you start really seeing yourself this way you realize that truly in christ in christ seated with him on his throne reigning in life i can do all things truly all things through christ who gives me strength let me just My time is up. Let me just give you this example. So many times in college, I would go into the commuter's lounge. And in this commuter's lounge, there were numerous picnic tables. And that's what they just styled their tables to look like picnic tables. You could fit four maximum at each table. (laughs) Excuse me. Many times there would just be two, one across from one another. Irrelevant. When I would... Go into that room, I would pray and say, Okay, God, where do you want me to sit? Because my heart's desire was to share the gospel. And there were, I cannot tell you the number of times because I was up late studying for a test, whatever. I was so tired. And I wanted to just go in there, find an empty table, and sit down, peacefully eat my lunch, and then go on into the other side of the building, which was a study lounge. Invariably, when i would go in there i knew okay god where do you want me to sit my flesh would say that table because there's nobody sitting at it and i would sit down at that table and within 5 minutes church someone would sit down opposite me and would open a conversation and i'm thinking oh lord please not today just shut him up say nothing and invariably they would start this conversation <laughs> and i would say okay god I really don't want to, but I know this is a divine appointment. The questions that they're asking me, it's obvious. And I would, I would just open my mouth. I would just open my mouth. When I didn't want to, when I knew that my will needed to be submitted to his. And I cannot tell you the phenomenal opportunities that God presented to me to share the gospel at those moments. Probably the most profound Even though my attitude was the worst, God's grace was enough. It was more than enough. And and at that moment, God had to deal with my heart. And all I needed to do was submit to him and just open my mouth. I just had to open my mouth and God put words in my mouth. And he will do this for you. Are you stepping into something that's new out of your comfort zone? I'm gonna tell you this right now. Discard the lies that you're not worthy, God can't use you, blah, blah. That is that is Satan's lies. You have been rescued by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, washed clean, justified. He has imparted life to you through his Holy Spirit. There is more than enough grace. Can you submit? Can you? Can you you surrender to his will? Because I'm going to tell you this, that when you do, God will infuse you with his grace and empower you and speak through you. It's just that so many times when the opportunities present themselves, we take a step back. We give some excuse. We believe some lie. And we miss opportunity after opportunity. As we go through the book of Romans, we are going to find over and over and over truths. God's abundant provision of grace. I am no longer a sinner. I am found in Christ as his holy one, a saint. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Can you stand with me? Father, I ask that you would teach us in those moments of temptation to submit our will to yours and be surrendered to you. And in those opportunities that you give us to serve and to do what's right and to walk in all the good works that that you have provided for us, God, I pray that we would be surrendered even there to you. And that we, the testimony on our lips would be this, God's grace is more than enough It's not about me doing more, me trying harder, me fighting harder. It is about me surrendering more and more to you, God. Because in my weakness, your strength is awesomely perfect. So, Father, please, today, capture our hearts. Let that be what, what resonates in our spirit. By faith, I will walk in this abundant provision of grace, for I will reign in life according to your word. God, plant that truth in us. Throughout this week, show us how we can walk it out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Have an awesome week. Enjoy it. Look forward to seeing you this Wednesday night.